yes, thank you for having me, and I'm thankful that we get to open the Word together and uh, get to preach you. So, preach to you. So let's uh, let's open the Word to Haggai. We're going to be in Haggai today, chapter one. Haggai one. If you're um, not familiar with that book, it's kind of a minor prophet and small little book on the Old Testament. Easiest way to find it is to go to the New Testament, Matthew, and then turn back a couple books. Go back to Malachi and then uh, Zechariah and then Haggai right there. Minor prophet, but not minor in message. So hopefully we'll hear that today. Haggai chapter 1. We'll read all 15 verses and before we get into it. In the second year of Darius the king, and in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I might take pleasure in it and that I might be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself on his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew. The earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and on grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year, of Darius the King. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, what a blessing it is to open Your Word together, to be challenged by these commands and these calls so many years ago. And although these texts can seem so ancient and out of touch to us at times, Lord, help us to see Your eternal Word through them, to see the struggles with idolatry and sin that so easily come to the forefront of our own lives and our own hearts, and to be challenged and changed by Your Spirit's work in us as You call us to repentance and faith. And God, we praise You and rejoice 
that you have commanded great things and you have fulfilled those commands in the person and work of Christ for us and that you give us grace and faith to continue to follow him in repentance. We pray all this, Lord, in his precious name. Amen. Well, I'd like to start this morning by reading a a brief thing from a publication that I regularly read, um, Cosmo Girl. So, yeah, you know, my dad told me years ago when I had a daughter that the world would change. Uh, He was so right. And I hope and pray that my daughter never reads this stuff and pray for that as as well as you. So, um, but this is Cosmo Girl's 10 Rules for Love. I won't share them all, but I'll share a couple just to give you a taste of what, what they say. Rule number one, when you like a guy, don't tell your girlfriends. <laughs> Makes sense. Alienate those around you, right? Um, rule number two, talk to a guy as if you don't like him. <laughs> it's no wonder guys are confused, right? Um, rule number three, always have an opinion. <laughs> Seems like the rules to get people to despise you in a way. Um, and I'm going to just give a skip to the end because they don't get any better. Sorry. Uh, the big rule, the cardinal rule, according to Cosmo, on how you love well. This is the one you should not break. No matter what, always put yourself first. Okay, Satan. <laughs> Whatever you say, right? Doesn't that sound like something right out of the garden? And, and teenage girls are reading this. Thinking that this this is how you love well, but really, can you can you blame them? They probably wouldn't even know that it's any different from what they hear in our world. I mean, this kind of stuff is all over our slogans. It's all over our our music, even. I mean, think of every pop song you've heard in the last ten years. Isn't everyone basically you're special, you're beautiful, you're a shooting star, you're a firework? Um, you're perfect just the way you are. Don't change a thing. Don't let anybody tell you you can't do something. It's the world we live in. And if we are tempted to believe that, you know, that's a problem out there. That's an issue that they have in the world, not in the church. We need to open our eyes as well. I went on Amazon and looked up the top 100 Christian books. I don't know if you've ever done that, but maybe I would encourage you not to. It's a little bit depressing. Um, I'd have to say there were, there were some encouraging points. There were some good books on the top 100, a couple. I thank God for that. But so many of them were filled like books like this. Sun stands still. What happens when you dare to ask God for the impossible? And by the impossible, he meant lots of money. Think better, live better. Which, of course, is the sequel to your best life now. You see, even, even though we think this is an issue in the world, this... These kind of theologies leak their way into the church. Whether you read those or not, they can still be in our hearts because we're sinful and broken. And we can start to even believe that God exists to meet our needs. To make me happy. To um, help me accomplish my dreams. And we can start to assume that God is there to serve me. But the Bible's message is the complete opposite of that, isn't it? I mean, Mark 8. You guys are studying through Mark right now, right? a little while ago, but whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. Jesus calls us to die to ourselves and give our life to Him, not to put ourselves first. Isn't it encouraging to know that we're not the only one with the struggle, though? 
And it's not just a struggle we see today. This is a universal struggle for mankind after the fall, isn't it? And it's a struggle that so clearly comes out in Israel's history. And that's what we see in Haggai today. But before we get into the words of Haggai, let me give you some history because, like I said, this is a minor prophet in a very specific time and we can forget how we got to this point. So we need to rewind time all the way back to the promised land. So God's people were in God's place under God's rule and blessing. They were being governed by kings. They, they had freedom. They had freedom to worship. They had the temple. They were blessed tremendously. But after years went by, they started to, to fade away. They started to go after idols of other nations. They started to bring in foreigners and their gods. And they started to drift. And then the most horrible thing that could have happened happened in the year 586 B.C. The pagan nation of Babylon came in and wiped them out. Destroyed the temple destroyed the the whole city of God and took everybody that's alive, took them hundreds of miles away in exile in Babylon for 70 years. I need to tell you up front, we don't understand how devastating that was. We don't. We can't, I don't think. I, we've seen, you know, CGI versions of the White House being blown up on movies. and We've seen, you know, dramas and different things. And we've had government turmoil and difficulties and in our history, but this is not like just a nation being destroyed. This is as if God was was divorcing His unfaithful bride. I've had enough of your sin, I'm wiping my hands of my unfaithful bride, and I'm leaving you behind. That's how they felt. Being kicked out of God's place. Being abandoned by God. But they weren't abandoned by God. In fact, during that exile, Jeremiah predicted that the exile would only be for 70 years. That God's grace would show up after 70 years and they would be back in the province land. And that's exactly what happens in the book of Ezra. And I encourage you, we only have this time together this weekend, but read the book of Ezra this week. It gives us a historical background of everything that's going on in Haggai. But in Ezra, the people of God experience this miracle. They're in exile, and then all of a sudden, this powerful nation is overthrown by another powerful pagan nation, the nation of Persia. And then the king of Persia, Cyrus is so different than Babylon. He completely changes the way they do their foreign policy. And he actually believed that if he gave his citizens freedom, that they would be more devoted to him. So he said, Israel, I know you want to go back to your promised land. I'll support you in that. In fact, I'll send you on your way. I will give you money. I will even try to return as much as I can that Babylon took from you. And I will bless you, and and you can go and build your temple. You can go and worship your God. Just remember one thing when you get there. Don't forget Persia. Don't forget us. Be faithful to us. And by this miracle of God working through this pagan king in 536 B.C., 50 years, 50 years after exile, 50,000 people, about 50,000 people, returned to the promised land to build the temple. Isn't that an incredible miracle? Man, remember that when you get frustrated with government. God alone is over kings and rulers in this age, and He can do whatever He wants, and we can trust Him. But you need to know something else about this group of people. It's not just this random group of people. These are committed followers of God. These are probably children of the people who got kicked out, children and grandchildren of the people that went into exile in the first place. So most of them had never even seen the Promised Land. They lived their whole life in exile and heard stories about how great the promised land was and what a blessing it was to have the land. And these people would leave their families, their friends, 
in now a comfortable nation in Persia where they had all kinds of freedom. They would leave all that behind to go to this place that's desolate, that's been destroyed, the, the place where God's, God's presence was going to work in the people, but in a place where foreigners would come in and rob people and hurt people. A really dangerous place. And these people were committed to God like no other. You know the first thing they did when they got to the Promised Land? They didn't build their houses. They didn't even start in the temple, which makes sense. The first thing they built was an altar. Isn't that beautiful? They, they built an altar to their God. And they worshipped God in Ezra 3 and said, this is why we're here, Lord, for you. You brought us back. We're going to worship you here. We're going to change the way things are done. They need to know one other thing. There are two very important people in this group. I don't know if you noticed those names, those weird names that we read. Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel's in the line of David. He's their governor. He's their king. A rightful king. The heir of the throne of David. And then Joshua, who's in the line of Aaron, he's a high priest. So this is like the best church plant ever. Right? It's, it's an incredible group of people. The best credentials. They're committed to God. They're ready to worship God. And so they start building the temple in Ezra 3. And they build it. And even better, they stay committed to it. Because their neighbor, the Samaritans, they start seeing what's going on over here. And they're like, hey, we like what you guys are doing. Can we join you? Can we, can we jump in? We'll even worship your God with you. We'll help you build the temple. You'll get it done faster. But these Israelites remembered what had happened. They remembered that when their parents and grandparents invited in all these foreigners, they brought in their idols as well. And they said, no, thank you. They pushed them back. And then right away, Samaria sends a letter to Persia and says, you better, you are better in this. Because these people think their God is over every king. These people think that their God is the ruler of the world. And when they're done with the temple, they're not going to be loyal to Persia. And so Persia said, that's enough, you're done. Cease and desist. No more building the temple. You can stay there, you can stay in the land, but you are, you're done building this temple. And the temple lied in ruin for 15 years. 15 years. Now you need to understand this. It's, no one would have questioned their zeal. No one would have questioned their commitment to God. No one would even question this decision to stop building the temple, to be, to be loyal to the rulers over them. No one would question it. Except God. And that's exactly what the book of Haggai is. It's calling them out on this. Now let me give you some information about Haggai. It's, it's a tiny little book, two chapters, 38 verses. It actually consists of four sermons. That's it. Four sermons. Almost like the cliff note versions of sermons. Um, over a period of about four months. But Haggai, the reason God brought revival through Haggai is because Haggai is about one thing and one thing only. Rebuild the temple. Rebuild the temple. Rebuild the temple because he knew that the temple represented the dwelling place of God. In 1 Kings 8, it was the place where God's people would settle accounts with God. Where they would maintain the covenant and have fellowship with Him. And Haggai knew that the temple was this visible picture for Israel and the rest of the world that Yahweh is not out of business. That God still has more to do in this world. And that God cares about the Israelites and the people want Him around as well. So in these words that seem, like I said, disconnected and, and ancient and different than us, please know that the same struggles that Haggai is calling them on, the same repentance that Haggai is calling them to, we need to hear as well. Because we struggle with the same human depravity in our own hearts, don't we? So let's look 
and see what happens here. I want you to remember one thing today, and one thing only, okay? Well, you can remember more than one thing. But this is the, this is the one question I want resonating in your minds when you leave from here. I want you going home, asking your wife, your husband, your friends, your family, strangers on the street, if you have to. But I want you to remember this. Whose temple are you building? Whose temple are you building? Are you about the worship of God and His glory in this world? Is that where your time, your money, your efforts all go? Or are you about building your own temple? About putting yourselves first? Because Haggai is going to confront the Israelites who are all about building their own temple. And he gives us a couple characteristics of what it looks like when we build uh, our own temple. He says the first thing that happens when we build our own temple is that we excuse our idolatry. And then God makes us dissatisfied in this world. But then when God builds His temple through us, we see true repentance. We see fear of God and obedience. But Haggai also wants us to know, and this is so hard to see sometimes in the Old Testament, but Haggai wants us to know that it's the grace of God, it's the gospel that drives all of that. It's the gospel that leads to repentance. And that's what we're going to see. So let's look at the first verse here. In Haggai 1, verse 1, this is where the... Israelites are building their own temple and they start to excuse their own idolatry. First one. In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month. Here, let's stop there for a second because Cyrus is gone. Remember Cyrus, the one that freed them? Now we have Darius. Well, Darius is the son of Cyrus. We don't know exactly what happened, but this is the new ruler. And um, Haggai is dating his sermon here, pretty much. In fact, we know very specifically from these details that this sermon happened on August 29th, about 520 B.C. We don't get those kind of details very often. It's kind of amazing that we have that. And we know also it's a Sabbath day. The people were resting. They were worshiping God. And we also know later on that this is happening at the end of a really bad harvest. A really bad harvest when God's people would be no doubt reminiscing about the good old days good old days in the promised land, maybe even the good old days in Babylon. And then look what happens in the next part of the verse. In despair, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. I don't miss that. Just when they needed it. Just when they're at their last hope, God speaks up. God's timing is incredible. What does He say? Well, He says to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, that's the one in the line of David, Zerubbabel, the rightful king, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. He's in the line of Aaron and Levi. He's the, the high priest, like it says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Oh, this is not good. You notice what he called them? What did he say? These people. Not my people, not my children, these people. It's kind of like when I come home and I expect to see my kids and get a hug and my wife opens the door with that look and says, you know what your son did today? That's what I'm talking about, right? That's not good news. That's exactly what God's doing here. These people. These people say the time has not come. Why didn't they rebuild the temple for 15 years? Bad timing. Bad timing, God. That's their excuse. Now, as crazy as that sounds, there might be something to that. I mean, think about the persecution they got from Samaria, 
from Persia, from Babylon, all these things, all these horrible things happening, they could say something like, Lord, you want us to obey the governing authorities, don't you? I listened to Randy's sermon last week, right? Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God's things that are God's. You want us to do those things? We were just listening to them. We'll rebuild the temple when they, they say it's okay. I mean, Lord, look, we, we had to take care of our families first. We built the altar first. We didn't even have homes. And so we had to take care of our families, and that takes time to develop. We were dealing with them for 15 years. It's even possible that some of them said, you know what, God, you were very specific on the year that we would return. You said 70 years in exile. This is year 66. A little procrastination doesn't hurt you, buddy, right? God, we'll be obedient to you, but we'll get around to it. That's their excuses. Look at verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? You see what God's doing here? He's saying, okay, you want to talk time? Let's talk time then. Right? Is this time for you to dwell in your paneled houses? Or what in the world is a paneled house? Well, it simply just means a wood house. Probably cedar from that area, and it meant usually the walls are made of wood, the ceiling might be made of wood, and it doesn't seem like that big a deal to us, but it was a big deal back then. Um, anybody ever been to Jerusalem here? Nobody, anybody ever seen pictures? You've been to Jerusalem? Okay. Are there any, are there big trees? Would it be a foresty, lush area? No, not at all. And all the trees that you see are like really short and skinny, and they're, they're not lumber, right? And so there's no wood in that area to build houses with. So where would they get wood? Well, they'd have to go hundreds of miles away to Tyre and Sidon. They'd have to take all kinds of money, all kinds of time, take all that wood back to build these panel houses. Probably didn't happen in 15 years. So most commentators think that they got this wood from when they came from Babylon and Babylon, uh, excuse me, Persia, and they gave them all this money to come back and build the temple. They gathered supplies to build the temple. They got the foundation going. But when Persia said, that's enough, they had all this wood left over. They said, well, we can't just let it go to waste. Right? We, we just build our houses with it. Makes sense. It's pragmatic, right? Reasonable. And God is essentially saying, yeah, bad timing, right? Well, you didn't have enough money? You sure have nice houses. Where's that wood come from? Oh, it's from the temple. It's a shame you didn't have enough to build the temple after that. Oh, bad timing, right? Fifteen years. Yeah, it's probably not enough time to build a house. How's, how's your house looking in these last 15 years? Bad timing, you say. Oh, persecution, you say. That's that's really the issue. Persians, yeah, they're they're rough. Hey, do you remember Egypt? Do you remember where Moses was? Remember what I did over there? Oh, yeah, you're right. Persia's just probably way, way out of my league. I can't handle them. Oh, my command wasn't clear enough. I didn't, I didn't tell you exactly when to do it. Fifteen years ago is, is kind of tough. Hmm. Remind me again, where were you fifteen years ago? Oh, you were in exile. How did you get here? A pagan king let you go and gave you money? How, that just worked out, didn't it? <laughs> hey, who's that guy over there? Is he related to David? Oh, and he's related to Joshua, right? So let's see, you have money, political support... 15 years, a king and a priest, totally get it. Bad timing. 
God is mocking them, in case you haven't figured it out, right? God is completely mocking them. It's a ridiculous excuse to say that they did not have enough time with all the things that God has blessed them with. Guys, this is going to be so easy for us to do. We have the Word of God. We have the clear revelation of Scripture. We have the Spirit working in us, challenging us to, to call us to repentance and to live righteously for God. And it can be so easy to make excuses, can't it? It's so easy to say, Lord, I know You want me to devote myself to the church, to spend time in small groups and fellowship with people, but you know what? I'm really tired at the end of the week. I have kids. It's hard to get them out of bed. I, I work hard during the week. And you know what? There's a lot of people in my church that just have a lot of baggage. <laughs> I don't bring any of my own, but yeah. But they have a lot of baggage, and it's hard to deal with. And it, besides, I worship God so much better at the beach. Hey, you know how hot Bakersfield is in the summer, Lord? No, uh, the church can wait. It's bad time. God, I know you call me to holy living. I know you call me to righteousness, but you, you don't know my husband or my wife or my kids. My, my boss. You don't know how hard it is day in and day out to deal with them and their sinfulness and their difficulty. You don't know how hard it is to balance a job and school and all kinds of things. No, Lord, holiness can wait. It'll wait till better time. And behind all these excuses is the same thing. God, you'll get all of me someday. You'll get all of me someday, but not now. It's bad time. We're so good at building our own temples, aren't we? so easily fall into the same way the world thinks about all these things. Well, what's the result of that? Look at verse 5. We excuse our idolatry, and verse 5, we become dissatisfied in this world. Verse 5 says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. This is one of Haggai's favorite sayings. He loves to say this, uh, to call them to repentance. And basically it's like, watch what you're doing. Think about the path you're on. Think about the road you're on. Think about what's coming up next and make a better decision here. What does he say? Verse 6. You've sown much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. You've been building your temple for years now. How's it worked out for you? You're dissatisfied. You never have enough. You've ever said after hard work, you know, months of work, even when your savings filled up and then something breaks and money goes to that right away, have you ever said things like, where did all the money go? Where did all of our time go? That's what they're struggling with. Look at verse 9. He says more of this. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And now we really get a glimpse of what God's doing. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. We found out who's behind this, don't we? God is the one that did this. God blew it away. Why would God do something like that? It seems so cruel. Look at verse 9 again. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house, therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and on the grain and the new wine, the oil on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, on all their labors. So God is essentially saying, I'm the one who brought the drought. 
I'm the one who gave you the lousy harvest. I'm the one who makes life difficult for you right now. And it's so easy for us to go, wow, how, how cruel is God in this? But this is incredibly gracious. In fact, it's actually fulfilling promises He gave in Deuteronomy 28. He told the Israelites, that, look, if you turn away from Me, if you break My covenant, I'm going to make your life miserable. I'm going to bring drought and difficulty and foreigners in. I'm going to make it really hard for you. Because it's not what you need. It's incredibly gracious for God not to allow us to settle for second best. For God to see us the destruction that our idolatry brings. And really what's going on here is, is this is God being a good parent. Have you ever done this with your kids where you, you see them doing something dumb and you know it's not going to get them seriously hurt or destroy something um, and you kind of let it go? You know what I mean? My foster son is four and his favorite thing lately is to stand on furniture. Um, and so last week he was standing on our uh, chairs on our table and over a carpet and stuff and I'm like, I wouldn't do that if I were you. You guys ever said that? I wouldn't do that if I were you. Then sure, you know, next thing he topples over, falls to the ground, bumps his head and comes running to me. And we have a teachable moment there. But that's, that's what Haggai's doing here. That's what God is doing through Haggai. Consider your ways. Next time your kids are doing something dumb, tell them that. Consider your ways. Think about what you're doing here. That's what Haggai is, is calling them out here. And guys, we need to praise God that he does this with us. Praise God when your idolatry falls apart. When your sins leave you disappointed. When your, your own kingdom building, your own temple building this, in this world gets frustrated. Because that's not what you were designed for. You were designed to worship God and honor Him and Him alone. What you should really be scared of is when your idolatry gives you satisfaction and joy. It's incredibly gracious for God to frustrate their plans in this way. To frustrate their own temple building in their own lives. And what else does God do? Well, God also says, well, here's what it looks like when I build my temple through you. When you build your temple, you see excuses, you see dissatisfaction. But when God builds His temple through you, we see true repentance. And that's what we see in verse 7. Verse 7 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. See, there it is again. Go up to the hill and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Well, now we see, it's not just God that's obsessed with this monument. He wants to delight in them, to worship with them. Here, jump to verse 12. We see what fuels this rebuilding here. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheothiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people feared the Lord. Well, there it is, right? There is their main problem. Their main problem was an idolatry. Their main problem was excuses. Their main problem was they lacked the fear of God. And God put that in them. Just like Proverbs says, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And that's where true repentance starts, doesn't it? It doesn't start with our hands. It doesn't start with our actions. It starts in our hearts. God has to put Himself back on the throne. And we have to repent of our idolatry. And then God works through us. And after repentance comes the obedience. Verse 14. Look what they did. 
And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts. Their God on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Notice, after they were convicted of sin, they didn't bring more excuses. When the fear of God hit them, they didn't bring their resume and say, God, look at all we've done for you. They didn't reluctantly pick up the shovel and like, all right, I guess we'll fit this in our schedule. Oh, they repented. They were cut to heart and they turned because they saw God saying, I'm not interested in being part of your life. I'm not interested in being your main priority or the top of your list of priorities. I am the Lord of your list. I'm the Lord of everything. I don't want to be your helper, your slave, merely your friend, your buddy. I want to be the Lord of your life. The Lord of hosts, as this says over and over and over again. So, lay down your temple building. Lay down your idols. Repent of those idols. Put your time, your effort all in me. Devote yourself to me. Repent. Turn from your ways so that I may take pleasure in you and find great glory in you. You know, I get, I get so concerned for my own church and, and your church as well with passages like this um, because I, I love that we as two churches, and I know we're more in town, love the gospel. We love the gospel. We love to preach the gospel, talk about the gospel, and rightfully so. We need to proclaim that every chance we get. But sometimes we can take the gospel and even use it as a license to sin. And we can hear sermon after sermon, even ingesting sermons audioly now, and hear challenging things after challenging things. And sometimes we can get so comfortable with conviction and not repentance. We can get so comfortable with being hearers of the Word only and not doers of the Word. And the Gospel itself should be the fuel for that repentance. It should be what puts us on that path to do what God calls us to. I don't know if you're feeling this way, but every time I study Haggai, I feel a little bit beat up. <laughs> um, these challenges are so relevant to me. These are just some of the, the things that came out of my heart this week. And I know that if you knew my heart, my mind, what I've said and done this week, you'd probably be tempted to walk out right now. If I knew yours, I'd probably be tempted not to show up. <laughs> it's the world we live in. So is there hope for us? Is there hope or are we just stuck building our own temple forever? Well, Haggai offers hope. Haggai offers hope to people that are struggling with idolatry. And that happens in verse 13. I'll turn to verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. And he said, I am with you, declares the Lord. It might not seem like much of a promise to us because we're used to hearing about it, right? We hear about it in the Gospels. We've heard about it for years. But to a people in exile, to a people struggling with idolatry, struggling with uh, oppression from Babylon, Persia, and Samaria, to a people who came back to the Promised Land and all of a sudden God's not doing what He seemed like He would probably do, they needed to hear that God is with them. And in fact, if you read the story in Ezra, there's something drastically missing from the account that we don't often notice. If we, we haven't been reading through the Old Testament that much. 
Because when the temple, the, excuse me, the tabernacle in the desert was inaugurated, was dedicated, do you remember what happened? In Exodus 40? They set up the temple, they made an altar, they sang songs, they gave sacrifices, they lifted up their hands, and what happened? The glory of the Lord filled the temple. Same thing happened in 1 Kings with Solomon. When they built the temple, not the tabernacle, they built the temple, God's people built a bigger altar, and they prayed, they sang songs, they lifted their hands, the glory of the Lord came down in fire and smoke and filled the temple. And then while they were in exile, Ezekiel said, you know what, the next temple, the next temple will be the last. The next temple will be the greatest one we've ever seen because God's presence will never leave. God's presence will remain and the glory will come like it never has before. And then when you read what, what's going on in Haggai, when you read Ezra 3, and they come and they build the foundation, they build the altar, they lift up their hands, they do the exact same thing, they give sacrifices, they sing songs, they lift up their hands, nothing. We find out after, the, after this whole book in Ezra 6, they finish the temple, they do the same thing again. Praise God, lift their hands, nothing. Glory of the Lord never comes. How disappointing it must be to, to anticipate that, to think that this is the, this is the final temple. And to be so disappointed with that, no doubt they would hold on to Haggai's words that I am with you. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to leave you in your unfaithfulness, in exile. I'm not going to leave you out there. I'm going to be with you and remain with you, and my glory will still fill the temple. But it wasn't that temple. Oh, we have the profound blessing in knowing what temple that is, isn't it? The temple, the final temple, is not the one they built in the promised land. The final temple was Jesus Himself. Jesus is the incarnate glory of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of what it was said in in Ezekiel. In John 1 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled among us. We have seen His glory. The glory came down as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's why Jesus in John 2 says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. God has stayed with His people. He has filled His temple permanently. And Jesus came to live the life that the idolaters failed to do. He came not building His own temple in the sinful way that we did, but obeying the law in every place doing exactly what we failed to do. And He went to the cross, dying the sinner's death, rose again so that we might have life in Him. And His Spirit, excuse me, God's glory remains in Him, even in the ascension. And the incredible thing is, after Jesus did all of that, God filled His temple one more time. Remember what happened in Acts 2? His disciples were praying, no doubt, in a similar place, wondering what's going to happen now that the Lord has left. And God's Spirit comes down and fills the church. Fills the church in glory. And in Ephesians, Paul says that we, we are the temple of God. In Him you are too being built together in, to become a dwelling in which the Lord, or which God lives by His Spirit. We are the temple of God now. Not because we're righteous enough. Not because we stopped building our temple for long enough. Not because we've obeyed enough or we have the greatest potential. No, but only by the grace of God. And only because of like what Mike said earlier, we have union with the true temple. That's what it talks about in Ephesians. You're not the builder of the temple in Ephesians. 
You're a brick. I don't know if that makes you feel any better, but it's, I think it's glorious news. Do you know, every time the Bible talks about building the temple, building the kingdom of God, it never talks about you that way. The Bible never talks about us building, us advancing the kingdom. It never says that. All the verbs for the temple and the kingdom are all passive. Receive the temple. Herald the temple. Right? Seek God's kingdom. They're all passive. Well, what's the point? It's that God is the one that builds His temple. So my initial question with you you was kind of a trick question. Whose temple are you building? The answer is always your own. That's That's our own temple in our sinful, broken world. That's the temple we're best at building. And the good news is that God has built His own temple. Not that you build it, but that God will use you to build it. So what do we do? Well, we repent of our own temple building. We repent of our idols, our selfishness, our sinfulness. We turn to Jesus who is the true temple. We, we accept um, the grace of God by faith, receive it by faith. We repent, we worship God, and God uses us. By some sovereign grace, He uses broken, sinful people like us to build His temple to display His glory to the rest of the world. So my call to you is consider your ways. Stop building your own temple. It won't last in this world. Let the fear of God transform you and lead you to repentance, to faith. And as He does that, and as He continues to do that, ask God to build His temple through us so that He may be glorified. Let's pray. Father, what a challenge Your Word has for us. Help us, Lord, to get an accurate view of ourselves, to see our own depravity, our own brokenness after the fall, and to see how desperately we need Your Son. We're so thankful for Christ and all that He's done. He's done everything that we couldn't do, that we failed to do. And we know it's only by our union with Him that we have hope and peace and joy in this world. And it's that hope and peace and unity with You and each other that You've given to us through the cross that gives us hope for all eternity. Let that transform us. Let that change us. Let us delight in serving and obeying You, knowing all that You've done to free us from sin. Free us from the struggle so that we can struggle to see Your kingdom advance through us. We pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.